0: And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode seventy-eight of the Lawyerist Podcast, where we talk with Randall Ryder about launching a solo practice as a family's sole breadwinner and the difference between brand and reputation.
1: Today's podcast is sponsored by Zero. Beautiful Legal Accounting Simplified. Find out more at XERO.com.
0: That's Zero.com. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Abacus Private Cloud, future-proof for your firm by going virtual. Learn more at abacusprivatecloud.com slash lawyerist. If you enjoy the show, please visit
1: lawyerist.com slash podcast and click on support the podcast to help us keep new episodes coming every week. So Aaron, this week I wanted to talk about something that popped up on Above the Law. Bob Ambrogi is uh, partnering with Thompson to do uh, results of a legal text survey But one of the things that really jumped out at me while I was reading his sort of initial thoughts on it was this quote. For solos, the greatest indicator of success is client satisfaction rankings. In every other sized firm, lawyers say overall profits is the greatest indicator of success. That was the quote from the article, and I thought it was really provocative. Like, what is it about solos that makes them focus on client satisfaction over profits? And why is it that as soon as you take on a partner, you're more likely to focus on profits over client satisfaction?
0: Yeah, so I was thinking about this, and I read a few people's kind of tweets in response. And the the dynamic I'm trying to think through is, is the distinction here that solos have a different motivation and that their motivation is the good relationships and outcomes for their clients and that kind of once you start forming a firm that's more business-oriented, all you care about is money? Um, Or is it the alternative that solos don't get it and that what they should be focused on is profit and the reason they are solos is because they don't see that they should be thinking about profit? And I don't know the answer to that, but I think – The question is fascinating.
1: I think uh, my hunch is it's sort of all of the above. Yes. Um, I think one of the reasons people stay solo is so they don't have to have business strategies. It's pretty hard to have a, you know, really concrete business strategy if you're just one person. You can can have one and you can do stuff, but you've kind of got your hands full just serving your clients. And so, that remains your focus. But as soon as you start taking on a few more people, then you actually have a business that's that's not just you doing things. And so it does kind of make sense that you start focusing on business goals like profits.
0: Well, and to be clear, these are like super broad brush strokes. I yes. mean, as we'll hear in a few minutes in your interview with Randall, there are plenty of solos who have profits and business strategy in mind while they provide good client satisfaction. That's not the distinction. I think it's kind of what the motivation is that's interesting to think through.
1: Yeah, and, and how you consider success. But that's a really good segue. So here's my conversation with Randall.
2: Hi, I'm Randall Ryder. I am a consumer rights attorney in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I also teach at the University of Minnesota Law School.
1: Thanks for being with us, Randall. Um, you, you left out my favorite part, which is that you have been writing for Lawyerist for many, many years. In fact, we, you were doing that back when you and I were working together at my firm.
2: I was actually just going to say I left out my biggest claim to fame, which is I'm your former associate. <laughs> I,
1: I I don't even like to put that on you now because you've been doing what I was doing for longer than I have at this point, And I now look back to you as the expert, which I guess sort of touches on something we wanted to talk about later. Yeah, absolutely. But you are a true solo, right? You You don't have help as far as I'm aware.
2: I have no help other than the love and support of my family.
1: <laughs> well, let's talk about that because um, until recently you were the sole breadwinner and you started uh, out by, by buying my, my consumer rights practice. Um, but you, you did that fairly soon after law school. I think it was, what, two years maybe to, uh, after law school? And you were the sole breadwinner in your family, right?
2: Yes, I was, I'd been out of law school for a year and a half. And at that point, my wonderful wife was pregnant. I think she was six months pregnant with our son. That's right. And then I took the leap. And I will unequivocally say that when I look back on it, I definitely tell Katie. I cannot believe you actually let me do that because that was insane.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was a lot of stuff all at once. You, you managed to do it though. I mean, I, I've always told people you're doing better with um, what used to be my practice than I ever was. Um, I mean, what? But what? I mean, what's it like balancing all that pressure when you're the one? I mean, when I went solo, I had um, my wife had an, a job that I could have fell back on. You didn't have a fallback plan, as far as I know, right?
2: Mm, no. There was no golden parachute. There was no safety net. It was 100% swim or you're going straight to the bottom of the ocean. Um, but I will say that I think I think that pressure helps. Uh, I meet with probably because of what I do. I meet with a lot of people that say they want to start their own solo practice. You know, they talk about situations that are maybe similar to what you have where. You know, they're sort of interested in doing it, but they're not really fully committed to it. And I think one of the reasons that I made it work is because to say it's life or death is dramatic, but to say that, you know, paying the mortgage depended on me doing a good job, that it's pressure, but it's good pressure, in my opinion.
1: Well, and maybe that's similar to something that I've wondered about, which is um, when I worked for other lawyers, many of them gave me... Uh, offers like you know you bring in uh, a client and we'll give you a third of what we recover from that case or something like that. And I never really did any of that except by coincidence. And I've always said I th- I think that until you have the pressure of actually bringing in the money for yourself, you it's hard to get your head around actually doing it and and motivating yourself to go out and build business and try and get clients. And it sounds like maybe that's part of what you're saying is once you had to jump in and do it yourself. That sort of fear of not making money to feed your kid, um, your brand new kid, uh, was sort of what motivated you and and gave you a new perspective on it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't, I don't ever want to look back and say, you know, I, I didn't work hard when I worked for you because I don't think that's true. But I definitely think well, I, I certainly didn't think so.
1: For what it's worth, <laughs>
2: uh, <laughs> I mean, I well, I appreciate that. I mean, I but I did feel like. I had to work even harder Mm -hmm. Um, because it, I mean, it is, it's, it's an extreme pressure, but it's in a good way. I mean, it's a very strong motivational tool to be like, okay, uh, you know this case is kind of, you know, not so sure about it or this client might be difficult. And if I didn't have that pressure, I probably would have said, "Eh, you know, I'm going to punt on this one, but you know, when you need, when you need to pay the bills, you look at it and say, okay, I've just got to figure out a way to make this work. And and you do it.
1: And how have you done?
2: Uh, I can confidently say and accurately say that up until last year when there was a very slight minute dip, that the firm keeps growing and growing and growing. That's awesome. So it, it's it worked. Yeah. Definitely worked.
1: Are you glad you did it?
2: Yes. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: And I know that, like, you you know, you, through networking, through the teaching that you do, you talk to a lot of people who are thinking about going solo. And if you could sort of encapsulate your advice, like, what is your general line on, should I go solo or not?
2: (laughs) What would be my general line?
1: Yeah, I mean, how how do you help people make that decision whether or not they ought to consider going solo?
2: I am probably not as blunt as I need to be with people. Um... I, what i mean by that is i can tell within about 30 seconds if somebody's going to make it or not yeah <laughs> um, so i guess i need to i need to figure out a way to translate that into actual words usually it's you know you better be prepared that's not true the advice i give people is you know are you are you really committed to this are you prepared to not make money for months maybe a year and then maybe see the results you know, a year and a half or two years down the road. And if people answer that no, then I don't think they're ready. They're definitely not ready.
1: It's kind of, you have to look uh, very seriously at the, at the potential bad scenario of you might just have to limp along for a while while this thing gathers steam. And if people can't stomach that, then they're probably not the right person.
2: Yeah. There's a lot of people that start a practice and fold up their practice within two months. And I just kind of, I understand why, because people mean, of all people, I understand the need to pay the bills. But on the flip side of that, I mean, if you're open for two months, your friends might not even know you have a practice within mm-hmm. two months. I just don't think that's even close to enough time to, you know, formulate and announce your practice.
1: So, one of the things, speaking of money and, and potentially not having any for a while, um, one of the things that I've always been impressed with is your ability to kind of um, to manage it and save it and uh, account for it. And I mean, we've got a great series of posts that we've now folded into one big one about kind of everything you need to know about firm finances when you're starting a solo practice. Um, and you really have thought about that and have a nice system. I mean... I bet you had a lot of tight months up front. And so what did you do to try to manage those finances and, you know, not get kicked out of your house and keep paying your, (laughs) paying off your bills and things like that? Like how, what did you actually do to try and manage it and stretch? Did you have a bunch of savings or did you, um, did you end up borrowing money from family or, or how did that work?
2: I am very, I guess it's a badge of honor to say that I made it almost all the way I think right around my five-year anniversary, which was this past spring, I finally opened a line of credit that, thankfully, I actually haven't used. Mm -hmm. Um, But I thought I was going to need to tap into it. Um, But to answer your question more directly, um, I guess I was just very careful and strategic with Mm -hmm. my money. I mean, I, I think one mistake that I do see younger attorneys and especially younger solo attorneys make is, you know, they have a good month and then they literally go buy a new car. Yeah. Or they, I don't know what they do, but they don't show up for work for three weeks and take a nice vacation, which I mean, that's, that's fine. But I, I think you, again, you know, looking at the big picture until you've experienced a month where you can literally pay yourself, I don't know, you know, $500 mm-hmm. uh, you need to un- People need to understand that those months are gonna happen. Yeah. I mean, my firm does very well right now. I've still had months like that in the last year, just because of the way cash flow works out. And if you don't keep that extra money, you know, when you have a great month where you make, I don't you know, twenty grand or fifteen grand or something like that. I mean, I would consider that to be a good or very good month. Um, if you pay yourself all that money and then the next month You've got nothing to pay yourself. That's a problem.
1: Well, and and you've got some great stuff on managing cash flow. And the other piece of it is, um, have you accounted for taxes before you pay yourself that money? Right.
2: Yeah, exactly. And that's another <laughs> that that is absolutely another mistake I've seen people make, which is at the end of the first year, right around tax time, they are incredibly depressed and stressed. And if you ask them what's going on, they say, "Oh, I didn't realize I." Had to pay taxes, or I didn't really account for this, and now I've got to write the IRS a check for, you know, ten thousand dollars, and I don't have ten thousand dollars.
1: One of the reasons I like your post so much is that's how we manage our family finances right now. Is your advice? <laughs> oh. huh. uh, because because I'm an independent, you know, I I'm independent. I I have to pay my quarterly estimates and things, and so um and if I don't if I don't manage cash flow in the way that you suggest. Um, just because I have a good month doesn't mean I have any money and so we have to we have to balance it and manage it and smooth out the cash flow to try and make things work and so I've been following your advice for the last few years and things have finally smoothed out for us so
2: good oh, call cool. I mean I mean one of the reasons another reason I like it I suppose it's because I'm a delayed gratification personality but <laughs> the upside of it is if you do it that way I mean usually what happens every year is you pay your your the last round of estimated taxes. And usually I say, oh, there's a bunch of extra money in there. And then I just pay myself a bonus, which is pretty rad.
1: Yeah. So uh, we're going to take two minutes from our sponsors. And when we come back, uh, I want to talk about an idea that has been kicking around in my head for a while and that, and that you touched on when we were talking before we started recording. Um, and that is kind of rep- what reputation really means to a practicing lawyer. Billable hours are the lifeblood of a successful law practice. Problem is, you still have to bill those hours. Even if your law firm has an accountant, tracking hours, clients, rates, preparing invoices, and collecting on those invoices is time you never get paid for. And writing notes to yourself in court or on the road is inefficient and error-prone. Run your legal practice better with cloud accounting software and see why over 600,000 small businesses love Xero. Get a free trial at zero.com. That's X-E-R-O.com. Beautiful accounting software.
0: Did you know that law firms are the seventh highest target for cyber criminals? Breaches in security could cost you your clients, your reputation, and ultimately your firm. Protect your firm from cyber attacks with Abacus Private Cloud, the compliance-ready, fully managed desktop-as-a-service engineered to safeguard your firm against cyber threats. Abacus Private Cloud is brought to you by Abacus Data Systems, a leading provider of business technology products and solutions, including Abacus Law, simplifying your practice management since 1983. Learn more at abacusprivatecloud.com lawyerist. And we're back.
1: And so I'm not really sure how to introduce this, but um, I was asking you, uh, I was giving you the opportunity to tell me uh, what I was doing wrong because you are essentially the one person who's really knowledgeable enough and entitled enough to call bullshit on me when I give people advice about how to run a law practice. Um, And you started talking about that it's more a matter of how the way that you handle cases has evolved over time. Um, and you pointed out that it has something to do with your reputation. So maybe maybe you could kind of sum up for the listeners um, what you mean by that, and and then we can kind of kick it around and see what it looks like.
2: Sure. Uh, you know, when, when you and I were talking about it, you know, the one thing you asked me that question, and I very directly said, and I'll say it again, I, I cannot think of anything in retrospect that I would call BS on. Well, give it some time. Um, and in you fact... <laughs> In fact, I actually said in retrospect, I continually think about that you were a very good lawyer, and I was disappointed that you decided to sort of transition into other stuff. Um, But the one thing I did say is when you and I were practicing together, you know, the, the approach was very, for lack of a better term, you know, scorch the earth, balls to the wall litigation style. And when I took over, I sort of started tweaking the approach. And basically going to the other side and saying, look, you know, you know what I'm capable of. Do you want to just try and get this resolved? And in a lot of cases, that worked. Mm
3: -hmm. And in
2: part, I would say in large part, I think part of the reason it works is because I did have that experience. And I did have that reputation of, okay, well, Randall and Sam, you know, we'll do a bunch of crazy stuff. Or we can skip the crazy stuff and just get it over with it's incredibly important in terms of reputation. And it's you and I had talked about this a little bit beforehand, but reputation and branding are totally separate and distinct.
1: Well, I, yeah. Cause like what you're talking about is the reason you can walk up to opposing counsel and say, Hey, let's just settle this is because they have an idea of what's coming from you. If they don't. Right. I mean, that, that's that gotta be a piece of it. Um, you know, they'll throw 500 bucks at anybody but they're going to throw more at you because they've realized it might be a waste of time just to keep going down that road. Right.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I have to, sometimes I can't always keep my face on when I'm having lunch or coffee with somebody and it's usually opposing counsel. I mean, I can think of a time recently where I had lunch with somebody and they said, yeah, you know, I saw your name pop up on a FDCPA case, which for people that don't know, most of my, a lot of my cases are representing consumers when they've, been harassed or abused or misled or a debt collector did something bad to them. Yeah. And this attorney, I mean, expressly said, anytime I see your name come up on a case, I know it's a good case because you don't bring bad cases. And I just sort of bit my lip and nodded. And
1: I mean, but that's reputation fair, I, right there. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And it's everything.
2: Yeah. And to be fair, I am very careful about the cases I bring and I want to bring good cases for that reason because it's like you said a few minutes ago, when somebody has that built-in sort of, you know, preconception of who I am and the cases I bring. I don't want to say the case is over before it starts, because that's way too dramatic. But you've already, <laughs> you're already, I mean, you're already ahead in the game. Yeah. For sure.
1: Which is sort of, you know, I when I went solo and and... I had this idea, you know, I'm I'm smart, I'm capable, I went to a good law school. All I've got to do is just show up and and be that kind of smart, good arguer and I'm going to win. I'm going to win everything. I'm going to win every case and I'm going to be the best lawyer and and what I slowly realize is that nobody really gives a shit if you're smart and go-getter young lawyer. Um, because you're an unknown quantity yet. They don't know if they can bully you and they don't know if you bring good cases. They don't know if you know your way around a memorandum or a courtroom or it, it takes time to earn the respect of uh, of opposing counsel, of your peers before people will trust you with referrals, before people will trust you with um, when you talk about settlement and, and those sorts of things. And uh, you know i I think that's sort of priceless, and it's it's what we don't realize when we're just starting out that you you just can't, you don't even know what you don't know, and part of it is you just have to put in your time and pay your dues, and young go getters hate that, but it's
2: kind of true, yeah,
1: you've paid your dues now, you're a different kind of lawyer
2: yeah and and it's true, and I mean I guess the if you can realize that early in your career, i mean the earlier you can realize it, the better because. Your reputation is your reputation. And if you start off with a poor reputation, you'll probably spend the rest of your career trying to change that. Whereas, you know, on the flip side, if you can start off with a good reputation, it should hopefully stay there. And that, you know, that goes with, like you said, that applies to opposing counsel, to referrals. It certainly applies to the uh, judiciary. I mean, I am not in court very much. But I've also been in court where the judge has looked at opposing counsel and said, Mr. Ryder, something along the lines of Mr. Ryder doesn't bring bad cases. (laughs) He will make your client pay more money if you keep going. That's awesome. So Maybe you should tell your client to settle the case. And I mean, it's like you said, I mean, that that's, priceless yeah i mean you, you cannot well actually
1: that wasn't priceless that had a very specific price on it i'm sure
2: that's that's true <laughs> that's true that that actually had a very you're right, you're
1: right. <laughs> i know that you teach uh law students um essentially how to be lawyers um so you are sort of making that initial impression on them uh as they go through that the course that you teach at the university of minnesota and how do you how do you go about impressing on them the importance of building a reputation and being a good lawyer, for, I would assume, kind of a as a preliminary, before you do anything else, focus on these things?
2: Mm, there's a lot of classes where I just say exactly what you just said, which is, you know, one of the things I want to impress upon you is the importance of your reputation. And what I mean by that is, don't be a jerk to your classmates. You know, don't take these simulations too seriously and really hurt somebody's feelings because guess what? Five years from now, they're going to remember that and they're going to be opposing counsel and they're going to crap all over you because you pissed them off in law school. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, just trying to teach them, you know, ad hominem attacks are totally useless and fairly juvenile, in my opinion, unless... I mean, unless somebody is really just going below the belt, but even then, you know, what I what I tell everybody, all the students is don't ever stoop to their level. Mm-hmm. You know, if something really needs to be addressed, then address it in a respectful way. And I mean, you know, from practicing the courts, courts never want to see that stuff either, because then courts are stuck trying to decide who did what and who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. So you know, in terms of the importance of reputation, all I can really do is tell the law students. I mean, actually some of the stories that I've told during this podcast. And Mm -hmm. I think when you start, anytime you can relate something to something that actually happened in practice, that's when those, you know, thoughts and recommendations start to actually sink in with law students.
1: Uh, Maybe to wrap this up, we could talk about um, uh, what was the hardest part about starting your own practice? Um, you would practice, you'd been practicing for a couple of years with me and had started learning the substantive case law. Uh, you know, you'd learned some, some things about managing cases, I assume just through doing it. Um, and then, and then you actually, you know, started your own company and, and off you go. Uh, what was the most challenging part at the beginning and how did you get past it?
2: I think it's pretty similar to what, I mean, whether you're a solo or a new attorney or a new solo attorney, you know like like anybody else i would say the biggest the biggest issue is just having confidence in yourself um especially when you're you're on your own there's no safety net there's people you can talk to but they're not vested in the cases the way you are so just sort of realizing you know what i've got to make a tough decision here and i've got to live with the consequences and just This is something I tell my law students all the time, which is you have to become very comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. That is the toughest thing to learn. Hmm. And, you know, but uh, to be fair, the longer I practice, this is probably bizarre, but the more I practice, actually, the more I enjoy being, I enjoy the discomfort. Hmm. I like jumping into the unknown. I think it's fun. I like, uh,
1: I like the phrase, uh, you need to learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. That's a good one. Well, Randall, thank you so much for being with us today. And for our listeners, obviously, you can find a lot of Randall's writing on Lawyerist. And uh, it's very good stuff. And thanks for being with us today, Randall.
2: Yeah, thanks so much. Good to talk to you, boss.
1: Make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast. Subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.